Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. One of the most ruthless enemies of humanity is cancer. An estimate of over 18 million new cases of cancer are diagnosed worldwide every year. One out of every six people who die, die because of cancer. I don't know if you heard, but three months ago, uh, the Jerusalem Post and then CNBC and Fox News and pretty much every news outlet reported about a breakthrough in science and health. A Forbes article puts it this way. It says, it doesn't seem possible, but they say it's true. A small team of Israeli scientists is telling the world that they will have the first complete cure for cancer within a year. And not only that, but they claim it will be brief, cheap, and effective, and will have minimal to no side effects. I'm curious, how many of you here have heard that report? Okay, a handful of you. Given the brief information that you have, or the minimal information that you have, how many of you believe this is true, that there is a cure for cancer? Okay, lots of skeptics out there. How many of you want this to be true? Amen, absolutely. You know, we are skeptical about a lot of things in life, and rightfully so. And one of the things that I think makes us even more skeptical of certain things is that it seems too good to be true, like the cure for cancer. It seems too good to be true, and if it is true, it would completely change the world. We come to a passage today where there is another skeptic who has heard not just great news, but the best news ever. The skeptic is a man named Thomas, and the news is that his Jesus has risen from the dead. This news is better news than the cure for cancer because it not only affects the extent of our life in this world, but it actually offers us eternal life in this world and in the world to come. And in regards to the resurrection, the charge to Thomas and to us this morning is to not disbelieve, but believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and so receive life in his name. If you would please open up to John chapter 20. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 24 through 31 today. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you, and we are on page 907 in that red Bible. If you do not own a Bible, that Bible is a gift for you to keep from Jacob's Well Church. This is part two of a two-part series uh, on on, uh, do not disbelieve, but believe. 
If you were here last week, uh, you may remember, if you weren't, I'd encourage you, we, we, we're on iTunes, we have podcasts on our website, go back and listen to the sermon from last week. But last week we talked about John's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we asked the question, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ critical to Christianity? Is it a linchpin to Christianity? If the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be disproved, does it matter all that much to Christianity? And of course, the overwhelming answer that we read from Scripture is, yes, it is the linchpin to Christianity. Paul says, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. And so last week, we started looking at what's called the internal evidence, the the evidence that's found within the pages of Scripture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we saw that there's evidence of Christ's resurrection because it was an unexpected surprise to Jesus' disciples, which means they did not create this story or circulate a myth because it was something that was completely unexpected by them. Secondly, we saw evidence of the resurrection because it was undeniably verified to Mary and to other women and to the 10 apostles who saw Jesus with their eyes, heard Jesus with their ears, and touched Jesus with their hands. Thirdly, the third piece of evidence we had of the resurrection of Christ was the unceasing mission of the resurrected Jesus. That these scared, cowardly men who were hiding in a locked room saw something so significant that they became bold proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the resurrection of Jesus at the threat of their own safety, at the loss of their Uh, security, and at the death of their own life. And the only reasonable explanation that men who were so afraid would become so bold at proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most logical explanation is that Jesus actually raised from the dead. That they saw him and were so transformed and so convinced that they went out and spread it to the entire world, even at the cost of their life. Well, today we continue the case for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. And we do this through the vantage point of an apostle named Thomas. So let's look together at John chapter 20, verse 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them, that is with the other apostles, when Jesus came a week earlier. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, it seems too good to be true. All other leaders of all other religions are dead. They're memorialized. The fact that you would be alive is absurd and wonderful. Lord, I confess my own unbelief many times, God. I'm not overwhelmed by the joy of the resurrection. But given over to the despair of disbelief. Pray, God, today that you would indeed convince us once again that you are alive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 20 is not the last chapter in the Gospel of John, but it is the pinnacle of the Gospel of John. John 20 is the summit, the conclusion of this Gospel. And so this morning, I want to study it attentively and alongside of the Apostle Thomas, I want us to come to this passage confessing our doubts, confronting our doubts, and countering our doubts with the truth of the resurrection, so that we might consider that the, how the resurrection of Jesus Christ affects you and me and the entire world around us. And so first, I want us with Thomas to confess our doubts. Let's backtrack a little bit. Look at verse 19 in John chapter 20. This is diving back a little bit into last week's passage, but I want to make sure that we have the context for what's going on here. John chapter 20 verse 19 says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that is the Sunday evening of Jesus's resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hand and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We know from Luke's gospel, if you remember from last week, we get a little bit more information about this occurrence. And Luke actually tells us that Jesus tells them, come and touch my wounds. And then Jesus says, do you have a piece of fish I can eat? And again, I just, I would love to be a fly on the wall to see the, the jaws drop as Jesus takes a piece of fish and starts eating it in front of all of the apostles. And Jesus does this to prove that he is not just a spirit, he is not just a ghost, he is not just a hallucination, but that he is physically and bodily raised from the dead. Verse 21 continues, Jesus said to them again, peace 
be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And this is important because this is exactly what the apostles do. Skip down to verse 24. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. In testifying to Thomas, the apostles were not only doing what Jesus had commissioned and empowered them to do, but they were doing what was their joy to do, to tell their friend Thomas that Jesus is alive. How does Thomas respond? It says, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never, (laughs) I will never believe. Thomas is so adamant in his unbelief, even to the point of being irreverent and offensive. Now, to be fair, Thomas was not the only one who disbelieved the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if we look back in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 24, we see Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and there are angels that, that speak to her and they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Mary was told by Jesus, she was told by the apostles, and yet she still disbelieved. But she was not the only one. Mary goes back and tells the disciples about the empty tomb, the resurrection, and we read that it says, Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The report of these women that Jesus had raised from the dead seemed like a ridiculous, wild story from women who were delusionally depressed because of Jesus' death. They did not believe the women's testimony until, of course, that night when Jesus appears in the room with them. And now here is Thomas. Again, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. The Greek term for I will never believe is an emphatic negative. Ume, Thomas is saying, I will never, ever, ever believe unless I touch his wounds. I was once sitting with a friend and I asked him, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe Jesus really lived? What do you think Jesus was like? And and he said, you know, I, I do think Jesus lived because he had too much influence on the history of the world. And I'm guessing he was a really good guy. He was very influential. He was a great leader. I pressed in a little more and I said, do you think Jesus died on the cross? And he, saw, he, he, he sat and thought about it for a while. And he said, yeah, I think Jesus probably did die on the cross prodded just a little bit deeper and I said do you think Jesus rose from the dead to which he said no that seems crazy (laughs) it's too crazy to believe you know I appreciate my friend's response for two reasons one he was honest and dishonesty gets us nowhere 
But the second reason is because he understood something that we Christians often forget. The resurrection is crazy. (laughs) It's absurd. It's ridiculous that a man after three days would rise from the dead with no medical attention around him at all. If you've ever understood how crazy the claim of the resurrection of Jesus is, you too have probably been like the doubting Thomas and the doubting disciples and the doubting Mary. I've shared this with you before, but I think there are different forms of ways that we doubt God, that we doubt the resurrection, that we doubt Christ. There's three of them, and I'll share them with you. The first form is as an unbelieving unbeliever. My friend that I just talked about would fit into this category. There are certain doctrines of Christianity that are central to our faith that you just outright deny intellectually and in your heart. You say, I do not believe, whether believe that that Jesus is the son of God or that Jesus rose from the dead or that Jesus is the, the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except to the son. There are certain things that you just do not believe. You're an unbelieving unbeliever. The second expression of doubt is as a believing unbeliever. You would say, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. If there was a census survey, you would check the box. I am a Christian. But it has never made an impact on your life. You might ascribe intellectually to the truths of Christianity, but it has never transformed your heart. These people are in a dangerous spot thinking that they are good with God, but they are not. They do not bear the fruit of the Spirit. They think they are good people who God is pleased to accept by their own goodness. They have not grasped the the grace and the mercy of God for themselves. The New Testament is full of people like this. They're called Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders who are so convinced that they were good with God, but they were far from God. They were believing in their head unbelievers. And then the final category, which I think is Thomas and Mary and many of us, which is unbelieving believers. We have trusted in Christ for our salvation. We have been born again. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet there are times that we doubt. There are times that we question our faith. We wonder, does God really exist? Lord, where are you? Is Jesus really alive and at work in the world? This unbelief expresses itself with fear and anxiety and defeat and apathy and addictions. Because functionally, we don't believe the resurrection is true, although we believe it in our head. You doubt in your heart. If Jesus is alive, protecting you and governing all the affairs of the world. A quick example, you know, the immediate response of all these disciples, when they're convinced that the resurrection of Jesus is true, their immediate response is to go and tell anyone who listens. Do you ever lack that urgency to tell people that Jesus is alive? I know I do. And the reason is because we have failed to believe the resurrection, not just in our head, but in the depth of our heart and overflowed with joy and proclamation that Jesus is alive. You see, friends, Thomas isn't the only one who doubts the resurrection. 
Mary doubts, the apostles doubt, and if we are honest, we often doubt the resurrection as well. And like Thomas, we are doubting a resurrection despite the credible testimony of the scriptures, of Christ himself, and even of the apostles. And so we are called to come to God and to confess our doubts in repentance, asking God to forgive us for our stubborn, rebellious, wayward, forgetful, doubting, disbelieving hearts. And we come and we confess our sin and our doubts to God. Christ comes and with great charity challenges our doubts. Look at verse 25. It says, So the other disciples told him, Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, that is visible proof, if I can see it, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hands into his side, that is physical, touchable proof, I will never believe. Again, the disciples have been telling Thomas for a week that we have seen Jesus, that Jesus is alive. And to be honest with you, Thomas should have believed. I mean, if you have one apostle come to you and say, you know what, I saw Jesus alive, I think there's some room for skepticism there, right? Like maybe they were just dreaming it up, maybe they had a dream, they thought it was real. If you have two, it gets a little bit more you know, confirmed, but, but maybe they just mistook someone. I, I don't know. If you have 10 come to you and say, we have seen and heard and touched the Lord, that should be enough to confirm. Thomas should have believed, but Thomas was firm and unyielding in his unbelief until that is, of course, Jesus challenged that unbelief. Verse 26 says, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, on your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Thomas wanted undeniable proof that Jesus was alive. And Thomas got not what he deserved, but Thomas got what he asked for. Thomas wanted visible proof. He said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails. And then the next verse we read, Jesus came and stood among them. He got to see Jesus. But Thomas didn't just want visible proof. He wanted physical, touchable proof. And so he says, unless I place my fingers into his wounds... And then Jesus comes and says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Thomas did not believe Jesus raised from the dead, but all that changed when Jesus challenged his unbelief with the overwhelming evidence. You know, we have a confrontational savior and this is such a good thing. He confronts us in our doubts with the evidence of the resurrection. You know, one of the things I love about this passage that is so encouraging to me is that Jesus did not come and just rebuke Thomas. He doesn't say, you slow of heart person, what are you doing? Get out of the house. You should have believed the apostles. You should have believed the women. You should have believed me. 
Jesus does not write him off. Rather, Jesus comes to Thomas with gentleness and love and compassion and says, peace be with you. And then Jesus condescends to the weakness of his beloved apostle and says, see and touch. Jesus is compassionate to doubters. This is good news for us, friends. This isn't the only place we see it. One of my favorite passages is back in Mark chapter 9 when a dad comes to Jesus and his boy is filled with an unclean spirit and he says, Jesus, can you please heal my boy? He has this unclean spirit that is tormenting him. And Jesus said to him, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. He cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what was Jesus' posture? It was not a rebuke. But in his loving condescension comes down to the weakness of doubters and heals the man's son. Do you challenge your unbelief with the evidence of Jesus' resurrection? Jesus is challenging your doubts through the evidence that we have in Scripture and outside of Scripture. Now, maybe you're here to say, well, you know, if I was there and I saw and I heard and I touched Jesus, then I would believe. But we don't have to be the ones that were there because other skeptics were there on our behalf. Mary saw the resurrected Jesus, the apostles saw the resurrected Jesus, and as we talked about last week, Paul writes to the, first Corinthians, to the Corinthians that more than 500 had seen the resurrected Jesus at one time. And he says, most of whom are still alive, so, so go ask them. Paul says, I will stake the resurrection of Jesus Christ on 500 people that you can go talk to. And if they tell you that he didn't raise from the dead, then you don't have to believe it. The evidence was overwhelming. This challenging evidence of the resurrection was so overwhelming that Josephus, a non-Christian historian in 93 AD, in antiquity of the Jews, writes this. He's not a Christian. He, I don't think he ever became a Christian. Only God knows. But it says this. When Pilate, upon the accusations of the first men amongst us, condemned Jesus to be crucified, those who had formerly loved him did not cease to follow him. For he appeared to them on the third day, living again as the divine prophets foretold, along with a myriad of other marvelous things concerning him. Josephus, this non-Christian, recognized the overwhelming evidence of the audible, visible, physical proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then recorded it down as history. We can have confidence that Jesus is alive not because we have seen and heard and touched Jesus for ourselves, but because many other skeptics have in our place. We are called not to stew in our unbelief, but to confess our doubts and unbelief with honesty and repentance, to confront and challenge our unbelief with the evidence that God has given to us, and then finally to counter our unbelief, and our doubts. Look back at the end of verse 27 with me. After challenging Thomas's doubts with, with the overwhelming evidence, Jesus gives Thomas this exhortation at the end of verse 27. Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. You know, it, it's so interesting because you would think Jesus would not have to say this, right? <laughs> 
Like the proof is in the pudding. Like he's there, he's seeing them, he's touching them, he's hearing them. Why does Jesus say, do not disbelieve, but believe? Well, I think Jesus is, again, calling Thomas to repentance, to actually put aside his disbelief. Thomas was so fixed in his disbelief that nothing was able to disrupt it. Maybe you're here today and you're the same way. You're so hard-hearted towards the possibility of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you just are committed to not believing no matter what happens. And so Jesus is calling him to repentance, to not disbelieve. And then he says, to counter that disbelief by believing. Friends, again, the first step to believing is we must repent of our unbelief before God. This must be a continual lifestyle of repentance. To confess our unbelief as sin, to ask for forgiveness, and then to counter it, to turn from it by believing. This is what Thomas did as we see in his response. Verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Many commentators say this is the boldest proclamation of faith in all of the scriptures. If you notice here, Thomas not only professes that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, he actually says that Jesus is God himself. And because he is God, he is Lord. And he doesn't only say, Jesus, you are Lord and you are God. Even the demons would say that. But Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is not a corporate confession of a church, but an individual profession of a doubter who has been saved by grace. Thomas countered his disbelief with believing by professing these words with his mouth and in his heart, my Lord and my God. Can you say that today? Not just that Jesus is Lord and God, but that he is my Lord and my God, your Lord and your God. The narrative of the story continues and something majestic happens. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? What's the answer? Yes, <laughs> that's why he believed, because he has seen Jesus. And then he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's almost as if, metaphorically, Jesus is looking at Thomas and having this conversation. And after Thomas makes his proclamation of faith, it's almost as if Jesus turns and stares down the corridor of time and looks at you and me and says this for our benefit. You have heard it said, seeing is believing. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. To be blessed by God is to have the favor of God. It is to be happy in God, to be reconciled to God in this blessedness for all who believe without seeing the resurrected Jesus, who counter their unbelief with belief by saying, Jesus is my Lord and my God. John then continues with the summary and conclusion and climax of his gospel, encouraging us to counter our unbelief with belief, and he makes it crystal clear that while the calling while he is calling us to believe without seeing, he is not calling us to believe without thinking. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs, meaning miracles. Jesus did many other miracles. They're called signs because they authenticate the divinity of Jesus. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Jesus ministered for three years. I believe the Gospel of John records 19 days of Jesus's ministry. There's a lot of room for other things to happen, isn't there? Verse 31, and this is on the front of the bulletin as well. This is the theme of this series. But these are written. Why? So that you may believe without seeing, but with great confidence and evidence that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the purpose of the gospel of John, to sway your heart, not just to fill your head with information, but so that you may say that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Friends, do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is your Lord and your God? You may be here saying, you know what? I'm just too scientific. I can't believe in things that I don't see. If I don't see it, I can't believe it. I just need the evidence. That's the way that I am. I've heard many of people say that before. I don't believe in God because I'm scientific as if they were opposed to one another. But we believe in things that we don't see all the time. For example, how many of you have been to Antarctica? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone believe in Antarctica? We've never seen it, but we believe in it because of the credible witness of others. Any of you here seen your brain? Any of you? Any of you believe you have a brain? I mean, I'm not asking what you think of other people, but do you think you have a brain? Of course you do. You don't see it, but you see evidence of it all around you. You know, for decades, scientists believed in something called black holes. Um, And black holes are a region that has such strong gravitational force that not even light can escape the black hole. They believed this for decades without ever seeing it. Until earlier this month when they got their first picture of a black hole. You can Google it and see it. It's pretty cool. One day, we will see Jesus. We will all see Jesus. And for those who do not believe, it will be a day of judgment. But for those who believe without seeing today, on that day, our faith will become sight and our prayer will become praise. But until that day, friends, Jesus is calling you to counter your unbelieving with believing. Not by seeing, but based on the overwhelming evidence found throughout Scripture and outside of Scripture that Jesus who died rose again on the third day so that we might profess with Thomas, my Lord and my God, and therefore have life in his name. Let me end with this. You know, I started by sharing the report uh, that there is this company that claims they'll have a cure for cancer by the end of the year. Um, All of you are skeptical, rightfully so. But let me ask you this. What would have to happen for you to believe that claim to be true? What, What would, think about, what would have to happen? If there was one documented case in Jerusalem, would you then believe that there was a cure for cancer? You'd probably still be skeptical, and rightfully so. If there were a couple in Jerusalem, you you still would maybe say, I'm not so sure about this. What if one of your acquaintances came to you and said, I had cancer, I took this pill, and it is gone. It has healed me. I'm guessing your belief is going to start to rise a little bit, isn't it? What if two of your best friends come and tell you? What if, like Thomas, 10 of your best friends come and tell you 
They took this pill and it, and it healed them of cancer. If that happened, would you believe? I think you would believe. What if you took that pill and it cured your cancer? And it made it disappear. Of course you would believe. Friends, the evidence of Jesus' resurrection is overwhelming. You have the testimony of the doubting women, of the doubting Thomas, of the doubting apostles. You have 500 eyewitnesses. You have the non-Christian historian Josephus, you know, proposing that this is true. But the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ might actually be the people sitting next to you. And if you are a Christian, the greatest evidence of the resurrection is actually probably the person sitting in your seat. Just yesterday, I was riding home from Presbytery with Mark Kaiser, and I was telling him about how before I was a Christian, I was just dominated by anger. I mean, I was just, I was an angry person all the time. I'd been hurt, I'd been wounded, and I was just mad at everything and everyone all the time. It had controlled me. But when I had trusted in Christ for my salvation, when Christ came into my life, miraculously overnight, God took away that anger. Now, I still struggle with plenty of things, and I still struggle with anger at times, but it does not dominate my life. It does not define who I am. I'm no longer captive to the anger like I was before. And the only logical conclusion I have to why my anger was taken away is because the resurrection is true. Because Jesus rose from the dead and now lives inside of me. And he's resurrecting me. I cannot. It is a nightmare to think about who I would be if Christ did not come into my life. It is a nightmare to think about what my life would be like, how ruined it would be if Jesus did not come in my life and start resurrecting me. There is great evidence all over scripture and outside of scripture of the resurrection of the Jesus Christ but the greatest evidence is probably you. It is me. Because of the transformation that Christ does through the power of the resurrection that is only explainable if Jesus is alive. Amen? An old hymn puts it this way. I serve a risen Savior. He is in the world today. I know that he is living. Whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. In just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. Then the song gets really slow if you know this part. It says, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Come to God, confessing your doubts. Let the Savior challenge your doubts with the evidence of the resurrection and then counter your doubts by believing that Jesus lived the perfect life you should have lived, died on the cross for your sins, and then rose from the grave to give you newness of life. Do not disbelieve, but believe, and you will receive life in his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you for the evidence of the resurrection to confront doubters like us, God. Help remind us in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our anxieties, in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our panic, in the midst of our apathy, 
remind us of the evidence that you are alive. Let us look back at our own lives and see how you have changed us and transformed us and conformed us into the image of Christ. So the fruit that you have bore in our lives, God, we are far from done, far from perfect, but the change is undeniable, God. And it is overwhelming proof that the Spirit is alive in us through the resurrection of your Son. And so, God, help us to believe and to proclaim and to rejoice in the resurrection of Christ. Lord, as we turn to your table today, again, help us who come who are weak in faith, You are a gentle, loving Savior. We pray through this supper that you will again remind us and encourage us to stop disbelieving and to believe that you are not dead, but that you are alive. And while bodily in heaven, through your spirit, you live inside of us. Remind us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.